0: Good morning. Good morning so one of the things that I hope happens uh, out of this gathering is not that it, that we just come and look at the back of each other's heads, <laughs> but that there are uh, this is a big group so but the, that there are other communities that develop out of this, and we have uh, a book group and some women's groups and a variety of other things that come together periodically. And twice a year, one of the things that we have going is a community lunch that will happen here in this place on October the 27th immediately after class. And in spite of what you have always heard, there is a free lunch. There's no charge for this, but it would be great if you would let people know that you intend to come. I think there is a sheet circulating for that, and and, uh, that would be helpful. And you see on the announcement slides that go by that we are um, having... Michael Moore would come and we're having Jackie Lewis come and on the 20th of October Holly and I are teaching or Holly is teaching and I'm going to be up here with her. Is, where is Holly? That's the way it's going that time, right? Okay, I'll be here. So, so if you uh, are one of those who is watching this presentation uh, gathered around the breakfast table. Welcome to the pajama people. And if this is not your time zone, uh, welcome to the wine and cheese folks. So, whoever. No matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So last week I began, and I was thinking about this, uh, this is probably the last talk that I will give as far as I can see, where I'm going to focus on a narrow aspect of uh, tradition and ritual because the questions that have come to me have come from this community and not from a broader one. And next week will be... um, Well, you need to bring your seat belts next week. How can you talk teach what you do about the cosmos being billions of years old and then go across the plaza, and be part of that worship service and use a creed that was written in the middle of the third century. So my goal was initially uh, to talk about, and to do so succinctly, four things. I wanted to talk uh, uh, about tradition, Uh, I wanted to talk about ritual, I wanted to talk about myth, and... um, I wanted to talk about meaning, and I'll say a little bit about meaning today, but next Sunday that will be the the major thing. So um, I wanted to do that. That was one goal. I want us to uh, bring enlarged living and lives into the the world. And um, I don't want this to be a polemic. I don't want to sound defensive. I have absolutely nothing to sell you. I'm not trying to convince you about anything except those two things that I don't think I've ever mentioned. (laughs) I want you to have a daily spiritual practice and I want you to practice compassion, all right? So uh, I'm not gonna repeat what I said last week because that would be stupid. And uh, you can go online and find the summary of the talk. You can find the audible recording of the talk. You can find all the overheads uh, that I use on on the Ordinary Life website. But I do want to make a few summary statements for those of you who weren't here. What I said was that all religions throughout all history uh, have some things in common. And that they are all, all religions are humanly constructed. They don't come down, they come up. And um, they are constructed in response to people's perceived experience of the sacred. And they use the language and symbols of the culture in which they were created. We are in a tradition that was taken over by early Jesus followers, then solidified uh, in in the fourth century. These traditions embody perennial wisdom and uh, aesthetic traditions. You think about the tapestries and paintings in Hinduism. You think about sand paintings in the in the Buddhist Tibetan culture. Um, Beautiful things. All religions have these stained glass and things like that in in uh, religious in in Christian traditions. Not so many in Jewish because they didn't believe in creating icons or anything. And all of these religions are are designed to create communities, not individuals, that um, embody practices and, and contribute to transformation. And these religious traditions that we have been talking about give rise to Communities and persons of meaning, and they help answer the questions for people, why are you here? Or, as my spiritual teacher said many, many years ago, what did you take birth for? Tradition is a word that comes from, uh, it simply means the hand on, like the baton in a relay race. One runner gives it to another. And it doesn't mean just holding to the past, but it means continuing the identity of the past with the language of the present, and although it takes a while to accomplish that. So that's a summary, kind of, where we were. So let's talk about myth. First thing I want to say is that I wish the word myth did not have such a negative connotation. Uh, A myth is not something that is not true. A myth is something that is truer than true. When I say to Sherry, I love you all the way to the sky and back. You know that, uh, you know what I'm talking about, and you know that that is not literally true. If I were to say to you, I was running late today, so I literally flew to church, you know that I did not sprout wings and fly to church, nor did I run a helicopter. still waiting for my jet. <laughs> so my focus today on myth is going to be, as I said, very narrow. And next week it's going to be really large, barring mostly from the oldest religion that we have on the planet, Hinduism. So it'll be, be taking a lot from, from that next week. But today's going to be narrow because of the questions that I have gotten, and I will return to it next week. Uh, and with a different focus. And the narrow focus has to do specifically with the liturgy that is conducted here uh, at St. Paul's. And this is for those of you who say to me, you have ruined big church for me. Or those who say, I don't attend St. Paul's because I can't say the creed, or I don't believe the creed. Or I go, but I don't say the creed. Or I say the creed, but I cross my fingers when I do. Or uh, you get the picture. So, um, you know what the first creedal statement of the Christian movement was? Have I been with you so long? (laughs) It was simply, Jesus is Lord. That's it. And those who made this affirmation of faith did so at the risk of their lives. It's a powerful political statement. At least it used to be. Over the past decades, Jesus has been increasingly hijacked by the religious right, both religiously and politically, to endorse everything from racism to gay bashing to blowing up abortion clinics to justifying war. It's a long list. But when this creed, Jesus as Lord, was first embraced, Caesar was lord. And to claim otherwise was considered treason. This is the this is why those early Jesus followers were put to death. It was for this. I don't think our affirmation of faith today has this kind of punch. So we say in our in this specific church in this tradition that we are in, the Apostles' Creed. Now, I was thinking, uh, back during uh, the time when I was teaching here, a gathering called Mind and Spirit, I did a long series on the Apostles' Creed, phrase by phrase, and um, I still have an album in which the recordings of those series of talks exist, And they are, I did this so long ago that they are on cassette tapes. (laughs) So if anybody knows how to take cassette tapes and put them on CDs, although I wonder, I was thinking about that, I wonder how my own beliefs have changed since then, right? So the Apostles' Creed is the creed that is most widely used in churches to the West. Remember we talked last week about how broadly Christianity is divided into the East and the Western branches of Christianity. Uh, And and as with many writings that we have in the Christian tradition, this one has been modified, added to over over the years. Uh, For for example, um, well, for those of you who don't know the Apostles' Creed, it strikes me that there might be some here who don't, Uh, I believe... Uh, in God the Father Almighty. This phrase was added sometime very late. And in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, suffered under Pontius Pilate, the only name that is mentioned in the Apostles' Creed is here, crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into the dead or into hell. We don't say that in the Methodist church. We're too polite. There is a reason that we don't say this in the Methodist church and it's not a good one. Wesley just didn't like it. <laughs> and then there is the rest of the Apostles' Creed there. You, 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 you know it. I'm assuming you know it. There's another creed that is used in uh, the West in liturgical churches that are more aligned with the, uh, the Roman tradition, and that's the Nicene Creed, The Nicene Creed uh, was adopted somewhere also in the early part of the 4th century as part of the solidification of the Christian movement, and it was primarily conceived because of a debate that went on among the early Jesus followers about the identity and meaning of Jesus, and so this creed came into existence. I'm not going to talk about that. It would bore you to tears. But uh, my point is that creedal statements have been part of the Jesus movement since the very beginning. And so they're not anomalies, and they're not just unique to Christianity. Uh, what is the creed in Islam? Okay, now look. Look. Religious literacy ought to be something that you can embrace and know. We all, if these are going to be our neighbors and we're going to live together, we ought to know what our neighbors believe. The creed of Islam is there is no God, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet or his messenger. However, in Islam, there is an insistence on what is called the five pillars of Islam, and you know what those are, of course. (laughs) They are faith in Allah, prayer five times a day, almsgiving, fasting during Ramadan, and making a pilgrimage to Mecca. Okay. Now, in Buddhism, the idea of a creed is kind of alien because Buddhists don't emphasize belief. They emphasize behavior. Um, over dogma. However, in Buddhism, there is an insistence on what's called the Four Noble Laws. And you know what those are? Okay. They are there is suffering, there is cessation of suffering, uh, there is an, a way to stop suffering, there is the Eightfold Path, which I've been tempted to do. Uh, some talks on the eightfold path, and, and you know the religion of Jesus had a creed. And the Jewish religion at the time of Jesus had a creed, if you want to look at it that way. And the creed in the Jewish religion at the time was, "Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one." Very, very similar to the initial statement or creed in in Islam, and then. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All humanly constructed religions have some statements that seek to contain the essence of that belief system. Now, people come to St. Paul's or they go into churches that use the Apostles' Creed And except for some passages of Scripture, like those that have really violent language, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, everything in the liturgy seems to go okay. Now, the reason I know this is I sit in a chancel, and I watch people. And the opening hymn goes well, the prelude goes well, the opening sentences goes well. Somebody gets up and read. We have a tradition to we're a lectionary church. So somebody gets up and they read a passage from the Hebrew scripture. That seems mostly to go well. Uh, then um, the the choir sings usually a psalm selection from the lectionary. Then some lay reader comes from the congregation and reads from one of the epistles, usually. And then uh, there's a hymn. And then. Uh, There's a reading of a gospel selection right before somebody speaks a few words, that's a preacher, about that gospel selection, usually. And all of this mostly goes okay until we all stand and say the creed. And it's like a switch goes on for many people, and I go, A lot of guys never sing. A lot of people never sing in church. And sometimes when you do go and you get bored or you just want to do something, look in the front of the hymnal about the advice that John Wesley gave people about singing. Have you ever read that? It's really worth reading. I mean, really worth reading. Uh, I think a lot of people carry profound wounds about singing. You know, somewhere in the first or second grade, you had a teacher who said, uh, why don't you just stand over here while the rest of us sing? <laughs> and so people get a lesson early on that they're, they're not good enough, they can't sing, and so they've been educated not to participate in communal singing. they just stand there. A lot of guys do that. And what I want to say to you is singing is a delightful part of the evolutionary process. Right? These sentient beings that became humans in their evolutionary process begin to realize, hey, we can make noises. And we can hear, we can imitate, imitate the birds. And look, we can move. We have feet and we can jump around and we can dance. You've seen videos of aboriginal tribes that come together chanting and dancing and moving. That got trained out of us in the West. But that's what singing is. It's an evolutionary delight in the ability to make noise and to hear noise and to put it together and to sing together in harmony and rhythm except in church. So the religion that I'm talking about today, the one that we are in right this minute, I think suffers from many faults. One of them is what I call the sin of certainty. I think it's very hard for anyone living in this culture, living here in the South, with any exposure to religion, not to be infected with some A smattering of literalism. And the other sin that I think we suffer from uh, is, is the sin of superficiality. You know, our normal process is simply to look at things rather than to see into things. This is one of my attractions to icons is that they are meant to allow us to see through that the icon is about. Those of us who are in this tradition can look back and we can see people that we now call saints. I'm thinking about St. Francis who had the ability to look at nature and see it as the Bible for him. Nature was sacred scripture. The birds of the air uh, uh, brother sun, sister moon, he could see that there was more to what was there than is on the surface. So Richard Rohr says that what it means to be a Christian is to see Christ in everything, to see Christ in everyone. Got your seat belts fastened? So people will come up to me and they will say, um, you know uh, I don't believe the creed literally. And I want to say to them, as clearly as I can, neither did the people who wrote it. Now get that. They did not understand literalism as we think of literalism. They didn't think of factuality and truth together the way that we think about factuality and truth, being bound together, so that when we say to somebody, Well, is that true? We want to know, is it factually true? Not in the mythic metaphorical sense. Is it truer than true? So I, I want you to suppose for a minute that you're back in the time some weeks after the crucifixion of Jesus. He's dead in the ground. He's gone. And uh, there's some people who say, well, you know, he really isn't gone. He's living. He's living in me. And I see him in you. Uh, But what we do know, argue what you will about the the whole thing called, mistakenly called the resurrection correctly in theological terms, it's simply called resurrection, not the resurrection. But What we do know is that there was a community of joy and forgiveness and love and sharing and fearlessness that grew up around the memory of Jesus that was absolutely unstoppable. Explain it however you will. But let's just say that you were part of that movement. And you run into one of your old high school buddies at the grocery store one day some person you haven't seen in years, and you say, hey, hey, guess what? You know that Jesus guy that I was talking about? He's alive. And your friend would say, that's cool. No, I mean, he's risen from the dead. And your friend would say, that's nice. And you say, look, I would like for you to come with me the day after Sabbath this week and meet with us. We talk about the memories people have of him and his teachings. We sing together. We share our possessions. Everybody brings a dish to share. We eat together. It's a great time. I'd like for you to come. And the guy says, I don't think so. You know, all my friends are down at the Temple of Diana. That's where I'm going to keep going. And they have better coffee." Why? Because things like miracle births and resurrections were commonplace in the religious world of that day. Miracles were a dime a dozen. People who claimed to be Messiah, well, they were n- almost numberless. The concept of something being factually true was foreign to these people. It didn't they did not have a way of thinking about that. Now again, I am not trying to sell you anything, but if Christianity is to survive, if it is to flourish, it needs the kind of imagination that it had in the beginning. It needs what Iliadelio calls a new mythical, mystical understanding of the sacred in evolution. As the mystery of the whole that includes everyone, everything, every religion, every culture, all the planets, all the plants, all the life forms, it includes everything. So what I want to say about the Apostles' Creed, uh, as conceived, it doesn't point up. It points forward. That's how they thought about it. We don't. We think, oh, I don't believe that. But it points to a future of joy and forgiveness and love and sharing and fearlessness because that's the context in which the creed was created, at least this one. And when we say it, it is supposed to be in and with that spirit, not, well, I don't believe that phrase. Just like when people recite the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come on earth. As it is in heaven. That's another very political statement. We don't hear it that way. But what has to happen for God's kingdom to come on earth? Our kingdom's got to go. And that raises the temperature. People say, ah, he's going to stop preaching the meddling now. So I, I may be asking people to do the translation that's required to appreciate the creed. Maybe that's a lost cause. I mean, seriously, when you hear the word God, it's almost a reflex to think of some being out there, not creative, connecting presence that is that is right here. I had a guy say to me not long ago. This is kind of off the subject, but not really. He said that to ask him, as evangelical Christians around him were doing, this is a gay guy, he said to ask me to believe in God when I have been relentlessly oppressed in the name of God by these very people is irony or the height of hypocrisy. So one other thing, I'm going to leave the, the the matter of myth behind for today, but I think I do need to address this. Some years ago, years ago, there was a guy who was fairly regular in attendance here and in the liturgy across the way. And one week after a Sunday, he sent me an email saying that he would not be returning either here or to Uh, the liturgy because there was a psalm that was sung or read that Sunday that had some really violent language in it. Now I don't know if you have read a lot of Hebrew scripture, but a lot of Hebrew scripture has a lot of violets in it. But um, this is just an example from one of the psalms. O daughter of Babylon, you deviator! Happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. Now, pleasant passage. (laughs) In high liturgical churches, where they have even song every day, in monasteries of all kinds... The entire collection of the psalms is sung once a month, all the way through. And like all great art, they lead us to confront images of ourselves. In the fourth century, uh, St. John Cassian wrote that the psalms carry in them, quote, all the feelings of which human nature is capable I want to read you what poet Kathleen Norris wrote about her experience of singing the psalms three times a day as part of her extended stay in a Benedictine monastery. She says, To the modern reader, the psalms can seem impenetrable. How in the world can we read, let alone pray, these angry, often violent poems from an ancient warrior culture? At a glance, they seem overwhelmingly patriarchal, ill-tempered, moralistic, vengeful, and often to reflect precisely what is wrong with our world. And that's the point of it, or part of it. As one reads the Psalms, it becomes clear that the world they depict is not so really different from our own. You read the news. So I would say the Psalms remind us that the way we judge each other, the with harsh words, with acts of vengeance, constitutes injustice, and they remind us that it is the powerless in society. Who are overwhelmed when injustice becomes institutionalized, which it is in our very culture. One of the problems with superficiality and certainty is the tendency to be holy or saved without first being human. And that's what I want to talk about next week. I think much religion, especially the religion that we have been exposed to, has been designed consciously or not to keep people from knowing who they are and to keep people in a dependent, childlike state rather than growing up. And assuming responsibility, I love the Annie Dillard passage that I used in here a few weeks ago. I'm not going to use the whole thing, but she said many wonderful things. And one of them was that when we walked into a church service, they ought to issue us crash helmets. I mean, but we've become so passive. You know, I I I really think that we would benefit. It's not going to happen. But I try, and I encourage you to. I think that there were several words that we just got rid of altogether. Our spiritual lives would be challenged. I wanted to say flourish, but who knows? Um, I think we should get rid of the word God. Because when you hear the word God, you immediately think, up, out, not here, there. You know. I would get rid of the word Church. Because for most people, church means a place you go to, not a people that you are. I was amazed that uh, Jeff touched on this in you know, a big way in his uh, sermon today. For the early followers of Jesus, community meant, uh, church meant community. It's where we gather. This is our church. And I would get rid of the word worship. God does not need us to worship her. <laughs> See? God needs us to love each other and our mother, the earth. And so what I would do, I would replace the word worship with the word liturgy. The word liturgy means work of the people. And what worship services have become in our time and have been for some time are things people more or less passively sit in and evaluate so that afterwards they say, Uh, did you go to church today? Yeah, but I didn't get anything out of it. You're not supposed to get something out of it. You put something into it. Um, If you ask a person today if they're religious, I almost guarantee you they will think you're asking them whether they go to church. If you were to ask Jesus if he were religious, his response would have nothing to do with attending the synagogue service believing in the literalness of the Torah or having five fundamentals that he had to believe. But that's what it's become in our time. The teachings of Jesus made it clear that real religion was not about attending, belonging, or believing. The the, the requirement was relationship, not about being correct. It was about being connected So we gather with and and around people who, like ourselves, are uh, attracted to Jesus and his teachings, however terrifying they strike us from time to time. Liturgy is the work of the people, but at the same time, the responsibility for benefiting from this work resides with the individual, that is, on you and me. So that I say that the path of liberation is first, of all before anything else being 100% accountable for who and what you are. So, again, I'm not trying to sell you anything. You know, there's really no roadmap between uh, the no longer and the not yet, which is territory that we're um, trying to cover. So I I, want to end the two talks series with just some random comments. You know, we, where we live and, and when we live is such a tiny, tiny, tiny speck on the time-space continuum. It's hardly, it's hardly visible. We, we live on a tiny planet that is part of a system of a particular star in a galaxy that they estimate has 300 million stars and and we we have been convinced that all this energy exists just for us and that we're the main show which is kind of arrogant that's why I added to the list of virtues that I bring up regularly in here the word humility peace love joy patience and humility we need moral humility and the chances are because there are so many galaxies that there are other planets that have civilizations They're not all existing now, some have come and gone millions of years ago, others will come into existence in the future. There might be thousands that exist in our own time, we don't know. Because we know about and trust in the reality of this evolutionary process, we know things change. And how we participate in this change can be critical. I think being against something is of limited use. None of us want our life energy to be about what we're against. Yet there are thousands of people who got up today, could not wait to get on Facebook to tell you what they're against. You want to put your energy into writing a new creed? No, I don't think so. There are so many more important issues. After some calamitous event recently, and God knows we've had our share of them, someone asked me uh, or said in the group I was part of, what's next? And this is one of those occasions where what I said just didn't seem to come from me. It seemed to come from somewhere else. And I responded, this is it. This is what's next. This is next. Right here right now, not out there. This this is next. And this territory is filled with paradoxes. Right? Filled with paradoxes. When, when people come to see me for counseling, one of the first things I say to them is, I'm like a piano teacher. And and you come here because you want to learn to play the piano or learn to play the piano better. And... Um, you know, even if you found the best piano teacher on the planet, just going to the lesson wouldn't be enough. You have to practice. You probably have to practice every day. You know, good piano teachers give etudes, they give studies for people to take and practice, and then they'll come back and see how you do. You can't learn how to swim by reading about it in a textbook. I think got to get the water. And sometimes these people will return and say, I did what you suggested, but I didn't get anything out of it. And I, I say, that's okay, you're not supposed to get anything out of it, which is a lie, but... Um, <laughs> You don't get anything out of it until you keep at it and keep at it and keep at it and, at it and then, you can, then you can play. One of the things that I learned from Jim Finley early on is that a poet cannot make a poem happen. But a poet can put herself or himself in the circumstances that provide the least resistance possible for the poem coming to life. And that's what spiritual practice is. A candle will not light spontaneously. It takes some effort to do that. So I got this story that comes from Russian Orthodox tradition. Um, This young man goes to see a very famous uh, spiritual teacher. He's very angry, the young man. uh, Very distressed because he couldn't make any sense out of Christianity. The dogma, the theology, the creed seemed like so much bunk. made him furious, but he still yearned to have a faith but he couldn't get it. It was like trying to climb a wall without any handholds. He just couldn't get it. So the spiritual teacher listened to him and suggested, I want you to go home and I want you to do a hundred full prostrations every day for a month. Now, a prostration is not this. I'll show you in a minute. It's wonder where you go. Uh, well, I'll show you. This is a prostration. It's, uh, it, it, it takes less than a minute to watch this. Okay. Thank you, Master. Why don't you do a hundred of those a day? My Pilates instructor would love this. You notice how he gets up with no assistance from his hand; just gets up. She tried to make me do that. I <laughs> accuse her of elder abuse. <laughs> the guy came back after doing that for a month, and um, he was glowing. He was no longer angry at the creeds. He'd come to understand something that he could not know with his head, but he could learn through his body. So what you're going to find in your spiritual work has been true and with you all the time. We just so easily lose sight of it. And what I want to say is it takes patience and persistence in the practice to experience and express it. So here's something that I know, like, came to that young man, and that is that when we break or don't have a, a, a solid connection with creative, connecting presence, we lose contact with each other. And we lose contact with other others. This is the root of so many national and global issues of our time. We think we are separate from each other. More about this next week. Now, to realize this, I think you need a path of some kind. And so I get it clearly when people say to me, I am spiritual, but I'm not religious. I get that. I get that religion has hurt people and is inadequate and suffers from... Not just the sin of certainty and superficiality, but a lot of other things. And we can talk about good stuff too. That's, I get that. But without putting you on the spot, what does that spiritual path that's not religious look like? Can you talk about it? Could you stand up here and give us a talk about it? About its content? About its practices? About the creed that's in that? about the community that is drawn together around that. I read predictions all the time about the fact that Christianity is dying and going away. And you know what? Maybe that's good. After all, the founder of the Christian movement said, if you want to have life, you've got to be willing to let it go. And maybe that's what organized religion is confronting in our time. After all, we do believe in resurrection. But in the meantime, this is next. This is what's next. And how we embody and express the values that will create a viable future for all people is something that we all have responsibility for. So if we're going to make this journey, we're going to have to shift to a new cosmology, an entirely new worldview, not just in our heads, but in our bodies, in our actions, as Ilya Delio puts it, "Shall we continue our medieval religious practices in a medieval paradigm and mechanistic culture and undergo extinction, Or shall we take up this dynamic evolutionary universe and rise and the rise of consciousness toward a new integral wholeness?" While I was working on this talk, I thought about this, and I thought about, well well, what, is, what am I about? Um, what what's my purpose as a as a spiritual teacher? What's my goal as a spiritual teacher? And uh, I, I'm in the tradition where I take Jesus as my model. Jesus, I take you know Buddhists take refuge in Buddha, uh, the Dharma, and and the Community, I take refuge in Jesus. The teachings of Jesus. The community of people living and dead that have come together around this. And and what Jesus wanted more than anything was to keep God free for people, want to get it out of the religious control and let God be God and people experience God. And he also wanted to keep people free for God. Those two things. That's what I'd like my teaching and my and my person to do. And then I thought of some words from Paul Tillich, a theologian who so influenced me in the late 50s and early 60s. And Tillich said, I want only to show you something I have seen and tell you something I have heard, which is that here and there in the world and now and then in ourselves is a new creation. So I encourage you to involve yourself in a tradition, the rituals and myths that lead you to experience that new creation and find meaning. That way you can express it in the world and enrich us all. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I will see you here next week. Thank you. Mm-hmm.